Dr. Koontz, you once said, I believe it was on the show, that uh, if I wanted to know anything, I should go and find out what the uh, 19th century Germans thought about it, that they effectively <laughs> had done it all. Mm-hmm. There was nowhere else to go. Everything was discovered. Everything was thought through. These guys had made a art out of science. And uh, so I'd just like you to expound on that that thought a little bit, the development of scientific thought, intellectual thought in Germany pre-World War One, and then a little bit post-World War One as well. The thing to remember about the Germans is that they are called the land of poets and thinkers before roughly the 1870s, 1880s, partly because of their poverty. So it's a place very rich in intellectual thought like Hegel or Kant or Goethe, but it is not a place very rich in anything else because it's not rich, because it's undeveloped and backward. Germany is sort of like America's, the way many Americans would think of, I don't know. Appalachia. Appalachia, Mississippi, Louisiana, these kinds of places. So people are obviously dumb there or they're undeveloped or uncouth or whatever. And so it's remarkable that they do produce these thinkers such as they do. Germany is also not unified politically. So there is no such thing as Germany in a political sense, maybe in an ethnic or cultural way, but not in a political way. Linguistic. Yeah. Yeah. So once they come together without Austria, to many people's surprise, in 1871 to form the German Empire. They then begin to develop, especially financially, industrially, and scientifically, in the way that they had been highly developed culturally, philosophically, artistically before that time as well. So that if you want to find some current of thought that will matter or some technological development or scientific breakthrough that will be utilized widely in the 20th century, you will almost undoubtedly find it somewhere earlier in Germany in the 19th in some form. And this goes for everything from the discoveries leading to as well as the technique of chemotherapy discovered by Paul Ehrlich through to the most arcane artistic or philosophical movement you can think of. It exists somewhere, probably in the German Empire or perhaps also in Austria. I think I got you stumped here. Gangster rap was not there. They did, they uh, did not you got, the blues. You got me, man. Um, <laughs> you, you got me. Um, I was just foolishly thinking of classical music, but you got me there. Um, also, no bluegrass. So Yeah, right. Exactly. Um, so what, what yeah. good was it? I mean, yeah. come on. Yeah, what good was it? Doing chemotherapy, yeah. but no bluegrass. Come on. Yeah, right. Totally useless. So Germany is not in this way, actually a leading power. Germany and the United States are both in the closing years of the 19th century, still nascent powers. The British are much more worried about Germany than they are about us. We have, for instance, a very small arms race with the British 10 years before the First World War concerning torpedoes. The British have an ongoing rivalry, especially a naval and industrial rivalry with the Germans for about 20 to 30 years before the First World War. So there is a jealousy and a 
a hatred of the Germans that gets engendered by their productivity and success. And that success is broad enough that there are there are several fields of human endeavor where German is the standard language down to about the end of the Second World War. Most of the hard sciences, for example, a lot of engineering, theology, for sure. German is the standard language of international discourse because it is the standard language of the people who are most productive in it. What was it about German society at that time or in the hundred years prior, probably to that, that time that made it such a uniquely uh, intellectual sounds too easy, uh, creatively curious place. It was, it's a combination. It's not just productivity. It's not just yeah. that they worked hard. Right. And it, it is, I'm not looking for genetic value or anything like that. There, there was something in the water though, about the way they thought, of course, I want to think it's Lutheranism, but that's probably not true. Um, or what was it that, that made this place so catalytic, catalytic? In most of these realms, you can find something that is very similar to the Italian Renaissance in the willingness of those who are successful to fund things that are apparently idealistic or abstract or of little practical application. And where it is of practical application to allow it to devote itself to research, that is relatively a great deal rarer, for example, in America, and is more or less absent from much of British society. So to give you to give you an example of something that would be very common in Germany, but is less common among us, is the idea, and this this became very productive for our agriculture in the United States, was the Land Grant Act, I think we may have discussed in one of the education episodes during the Civil War that endows places like Texas A&M and Cornell and the University of Iowa, Iowa State, these kinds of places that are going to lead to immensely increased agricultural productivity in the United States. Germans will do that in any realm. So Richard Wagner in opera has patrons. Writers have patrons. They produce pretty arcane and numerous literary journals. Artists have patrons. The arts are officially patronized. That's where you get all of these beautiful 19th century buildings in a place like Vienna, where much of the city is torn down and completely rebuilt in the Ringstrasse, that those buildings still stand today. You get a devotion to, I, I think it is a devotion to that then results in patronage, that results in a devotion to education, a devotion to the pursuit of research in any given field that is utterly requisite for long-term valuable production. By comparison, think about this fact. So just for, for most of our, our listeners, this is relatively close to home, is who ha who is given the time and capacity to both read and then produce a replacement for our dogmatics textbook, which is written by a man who was born in Prussia and wrote in German and finished in 1924, hmm. Francis Pieper. We don't have a replacement because we don't give people space and time to make replacements. 
you need space and time <laughs> to be odd and abstract in order finally to bring something that will become extremely concrete and helpful to lots of people as his dogmatics textbook is. But an, an example of this, and this will kind of get us started on today's story to start with the other train of cancer research, both of which are still ongoing, both of which come out of late 19th century Germany, is the man who develops the genetic theory of cancer causation, Bovary. He starts that out at a biological research station in Italy that was purchased by wealthy Germans for German scientists to go experiment on things, especially life forms that are lush and abundant year round in the Gulf of Naples that they wouldn't have in Germany. You can't do that on the North Sea. This man, Franz Bovary, is experimenting on sea urchins. So you need to give somebody a couple years to just think about sea urchins and why and how they begin to grow in the ways that they do, especially abnormal ways, because that's what cancer growth is. Basically, it's, it's simply abnormal, unwanted, and ultimately destructive growth in a body, right? He, he believes that this comes from their origins, right? That's called the oncogenetic theory. The other one, the metabolic theory, is what we're largely going to talk about today. But both he and the man who invents the metabolic theory begin <laughs> much of their study working on sea urchins at this Naples research station in Italy, which is provided for them. And they can just go there during vacations and look at sea urchins and mess around with them and dye them weird colors and chop things off and try to put things back. And they can just do that for months if you want to. So that is something that I see in all kinds of realms of human life, even as Germany is changing really rapidly. Germany, especially not just the German-speaking lands, but Germany specifically is changing really rapidly at the end of the 19th century. They, I mean, so rapidly that it's called the founder's time in kind of German historical memory, Gründerzeit. But it's changing that rapidly. Nonetheless, they are giving people time to be abstract. And the thing is, if you give people time to do research, they will eventually produce great things. If you don't, or if everything needs to be of immediate practical application or is in terms of some kind of grant fulfillment or something, which is now common in scientific research throughout the world, a model really derived from American corporate research and development, what are you, what are you going to produce? You can come up with new applications, like we said last time with Smeal. You can apply something that someone else discovered. You're not going to discover new foundational principles of things. Germans are German scientists are on a, are just openly writing out this is the, the question I'm looking for is what is the source of life <laughs> right what is what is the meaning of life's existence or if cancer exists the processes of life exist but Otto Warburg says the meaning of life is has been taken away you know these are these are kind of deep philosophical assertions about the value of one's activity and you need time and space to do those things. And the Germans are willing to give them to scientists and theologians and engineers and so forth. And I think that's the major difference. Yeah. So I'm, I'm really looking for them. What made them like that? What caused them to not be about pragmatic profits the way American business has certainly become uh, short-sighted 
how can we use what we've already got yeah. to make more versus I, the greater good, the deeper beauty, the freedom to to fail at wide and ongoing levels in the expectation that enough failure will lead to a, a blind squirrel finding a nut. And then that's a good nut you just found. There, yeah. So I had at least two things on that. One is, one of them is a cultural trait that is observable also in communities of German Americans. So you can call it genetic, you can call it cultural, you can call it whatever you want to call it. But in German, it's Grundlichkeit, which gets translated as thoroughness. But it has also to do with being basic or foundational and attending to what is basic or foundational. So if you're a farmer, for example, so just an example where where Germans outcompeted non-Germans in the United States, Pennsylvania German farmers devoted themselves to collecting the biggest manure piles, okay, because it's foundational for the well-being of everything else on the farm. So they make it an enormous priority to build barns big enough and barnyards big enough that their manure piles are going to be enormous. This never becomes a priority in anyone else's farming practices in colonial America. So areas that used to be completely non-German over time become German because they are simply more successful at remaining in a place and farming with a thoroughness that other people are like, well, there's more free land. This is America. So I'll just keep moving. And that happens over and over and over again. So also, if you live in, say, the Midwest, if you go to your oldest cemetery in your town, probably you won't find German names in that cemetery unless maybe you're in the Dakotas, perhaps, because your Germans didn't get there first. But maybe today you still find German names all over your town. And that's because they're better at staying somewhere and farming in a thorough way than many other cultures. So that that is kind of a continuous people like sort of a folk life trait that is observable in both Germans at home and Germans abroad from what I know about German cultures. I know yeah. you had a second point, but I, I don't know. I, we really are on a, a podcast where I think I can say this. So what you're saying is that Germans were the most capable of taking the biggest pile of shit and doing something good with it. Yes, that, that, they that were. Is, yes. And, and, really and more stunning. power to them. And more power to them. And when they, when they run out of, because the, some of their fertilizer sources get choked off in the First World War, Fritz Haber begins to convert ammonia into fertilizer and away they go. Yeah, you know? right. so he's, t- he's taking garbage, trash, poison, and, and they, turn it into yeah, something they, useful. That's amazing. So they don't all starve to death in the First World War. So yeah, no, they're good at this. That, that's, <laughs> that's right. So that's, that's a, that is a sort of a cultural trait that they do possess. They don't possess a cultural trait, for example, of just wanting to explore for exploration's sake that I observe in all British peoples that are just willing to like wander around anywhere. And that that may be why you can go to almost any continent and speak English and you can't do the same with German. Huh. So there are there are cultural traits that if you know enough of a people's history, you observe over and over and over again. Americans tend to be brutally practical about things. This is Ernest King talking about logistics, like we talked about last week. So th- there are things like this. The other, let's say, historically specific thing about German culture or intellectual development especially in the 19th century, is that being politically fragmented, one of the highest goods that they can pursue are intellectual or scientific goals. Because except for the Prussian king, no one really is capable of envisioning 
something bigger on the political horizon. They can't have colonies, so they will only have colonies after 1871. They can't fight some sort of unified national war against the French. Some of them side with the French when Napoleon invades. Some of them fight him relentlessly, and so on and so on. So the things that they do have in common, they have almost an intellectual or a linguistic or a scientific culture in common. And those things can be easily pursued, even if you live in little fragmented states everywhere. So those are that's a historical circumstance, a little bit like the American colonies before the revolution. You know, we're not spreading across the entire continent before the revolution, but we can talk to each other. We can discuss things with each other. We can discuss things with people who have the same language over in Britain. Similar thing with Germans, Austrians, Swiss-speaking Germans, is that they have in common a certain culture that can be developed, scientific, philosophical, artistic. And so they do that assiduously long before most of the Germans are contained inside a single political entity. Hmm. Where to from there? So this is all set up for a man. I mean, we're going to put at each of our essays on, or essays, uh, audio essays, if you will, on technology, a man in order to keep the story relatively coherent. For the sake of cancer research, our guy is Otto Warburg. His last name is a, is a German Jewish last name. He has cousins who are bankers prominent bankers, especially in the United States, as well as in England, which will matter for efforts to find a kind of peace after the First World War, and also for his ability to get out of completely economically devastated Germany after the Second World War. But his last name is Jewish. His mother is Lutheran in ancestry, German Lutheran. And so He's going to be, by the time of the Second World War, what the Third Reich will call a Mischling, that is half Jewish or a quarter Jewish or whatever. He's half Jewish. He is the son of a man who is a physics researcher, Emil Warburg. And like most other German Jews, is not uh, religiously practicing, but is utterly culturally assimilated. So Otto Warburg grows up not really being particularly religious. The religion in the family instead seems to have been scientific research. So Emil, the father, is a notoriously inattentive, bad father because of the single-minded devotion that he gives to the pursuit of physics research. Otto is raised to these same things and has the same, <laughs> a lot of the same emotional frigidity of his father, but does not devote himself to the pursuit of physics. Instead, he begins to research first biology purely, as he does with sea urchins and other life forms. And he also acquires a medical degree, all of this a decade or more before the First World War. At the outbreak of the First World War, he's going to be volunteering, actually, for a cavalry unit to be sent to the Eastern Front. So he fights the Russians in the First World War. And he fights them for several years with a great deal of bravery and is generally loved by his men. He's an officer, despite his emotional frigidity, and plays a great role in defending them against the thing that was often most terrifying to soldiers on both fronts in the First World War, both European fronts, 
which is gas warfare. So he's what's called a gas officer because this is a man possessed of a, a PhD and MD specifically in biochemical research. And so the gas officer is there to detect the presence of gas or the potential for gas. And so that's his major role in a unit called the Ulans, which is a certain kind of cavalry with a very long heritage. What's interesting about all this is that he's riding a horse around worried about biochemical warfare, but that's the first world war for you. That is fascinating. <laughs> but a at the end of the punky. Yeah. It, it is. It is. Well, I mean, that's kind of the world they're in. And what's yeah. interesting too is that he's coming from when he volunteers for the First World War, he's already the head of the German equivalent of what we would think of as the National Institutes of Health. So institutes is a plural there because we have institutes for various things, cancer and allergies and the centers for disease control and lots of different things, right? He is the head of their chemical research institute. It's called the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute. It still exists in various forms. These are now called the Max Planck Institutes after a different German scientist. Warburg is not going to claim to be original in the sense that he doesn't, he, he, he's not the first person to discover certain things. So it, one of the things that I'm very much interested in here too is how scientific research is itself international and peaceful but then gets put to warlike ends very generally. The reason I'm starting out with cancer research is because it's such a poignant example of something that wasn't put and obviously couldn't be put to warlike ends. As far as I know, big asterisk on this, no one was trying to give the other side in World War II cancer specifically. <laughs> so, so, I mean, I guess I'm laughing morbidly, but I'm not aware of anything like that. Because what, what Warburg is taking are at least two different research insights that predate the First World War, but he will really begin to apply this after the First World War. There's a, a pair of men at Cornell University in upstate New York. There's also a, a, a Jewish Austrian who will later move to England named Freund, not Freud, but Freund, who before the First World War begin to suspect that the presence of sugars in cancer patients, especially the elevated presence of sugars, and then consequent elevated presence of lactic acids is indicative of the nature of cancer, that something about cancer is not genetic as Bovary was maintaining. Maybe that has something to do with where it comes from, because it didn't, it didn't seem to them that cancer was, that there were noticeable differences in people's glycemic indices, right? The, the measures of sugar inside of them before cancer diagnoses, but that once the cancer was progressing, one's sugars would spike enormously and that one would also be hungry for things that would give you more glucose. And that was the cancer trying to feed itself. So this is this is suspected on the basis of research, especially in lab rats, in the case of the guys in New York, who Freund's assertions were more medical assertions, whereas the New Yorkers were doing more 
let's say pure research, lab research. Warburg also suspects these things because his guess is that there's something about cancer that is a, a dysfunction, not so much of, you know, what what starts it as it is a, it is a dysfunction of energy. So the difference would be, I get cancer because my dad had cancer or because I smoked versus I get cancer, even though I've never smoked, I got lung cancer because of some sort of elevated glucose in my body. Behind all of this and internationally observed, that is not just among researchers from different developed Western countries, but all over the world by comparison with developed Western countries, even before the First World War, is the anthropological observation that people who are not integrated into Western civilization, so the Inuit in Canada before a certain period, or tribes in various parts of Africa or something, they just have kind of nothing to do with modern life, even in 1910, have absurdly low rates of cancer. That is, sometimes it is not even visible, even in thousands upon thousands of cases. So you have doctors in West Africa seeing 10,000 people over the course of whatever number of years and saying, among 10,000 people, I found not a single instance of cancer. They have other diseases. They don't have cancer. Whereas Germans, Germans are unique in this way, and that's why I gave the answer that I did. Germans are unique because everyone observes during the 19th century increased rates of cancer in Western countries. Germans are unique in having, prior to the First World War, an institute devoted specifically to cancer research, of which Otto Warburg will become the head. Because they're observing that, for instance, in the 1850s, we had this many cases of cancer per 1,000, and now we have this many, and now we have this many, and it's way bigger. And, and why is this? And if you stop and you say, well, people are living longer, the issue isn't <laughs> the, the, these are not questions about, uh, you know, are we missing diagnoses or we don't see it early enough? The, these are, these are autopsy questions. Did this person die of cancer? That's not that hard to determine. And when you remember, as we've said on the show before, that the increase in life expectancy is a decrease in infant mortality. It's not like no one ever lived to the age of 85 in like 1840. It's that way more people were living past two by, you know, 1910. Is that they see in a population that shouldn't have this many cases of cancer and vastly contrasts with populations that are not industrialized or modernized, vastly increased amounts of cancer. So people throughout the developed world are asking and some are hypothesizing that it has something to do with metabolism and sugars before Warburg. Why do we all, why are we all getting cancer? Why is this? Right. Right. Because, because if you see a, a closed cycle of people who have a new thing that begins happening, it would make a lot more sense that there is a new environmental factor than right. that it is just something they've inherited. Uh, I mean, you can make the case that mankind is in our DNA gradually decaying. I, I, I don't know that I, I would entirely disagree with that, but it, it seems to make a lot more sense mm -hmm. that if something is suddenly happening, I don't know, allergies in young children, I don't know, autism, uh, you know, th that there's probably some new environmental reality that right. we don't want to, we, I don't want to say we don't want to, we haven't figured out 
that it's doing what it's doing. What's interesting is that it tends to be, in my anecdotal experience, Mm -hmm. we don't want to ask this question. We don't like this question because it means that things we have introduced that we like might be the things that are, are harming us. And modern man, uh, well, again, he's the greatest generation, right? We we right. we have we've reached uh, utopia. Yeah, and and another thing that that's observable about this is that Warburg is aware of various physicians, and and he never actually practices medicine. If you read things about him, there's a relatively recent book called Ravenous. I I think in in some ways it's 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 extremely cartoonish about german history but whatever he's the writer sam apple is right that warburg seems more or less to have despised almost like all people he, i mean it's really ironic that a man who devotes his life to relieving human misery <laughs> seems to be so generally misanthropic he he loves animals but humans humans not so much but there are physicians who report things in New England, in France, in Austria, in Germany, up to and including Warburg's time of of greatest productivity, which is roughly the 1930s, that when we put people on no sugar, low calorie diets, or we put them on something resemble a, a keto diet today, which is probably a lot of the listeners know that's originally intended to handle epilepsy, that that counteracts cancer. And, and why that might be is, of course, not known. These are, these are sort of live experiments in a time where medical risk-taking is much more permissible also legally for people. And doctors don't have WebMD, so they're kind of figuring it out live as they go along in many cases. Because also with with cancer, they're dealing with something that is, I mean, it it is almost something like autism in children today. It's, it's an autoimmune reality. I mean, it yeah, really it's, does. <laughs> it's it's something that's widely observed that people are worried is going to happen to them, but for which there really is no cure. So, for example, Apple brings this up. Sam Apple, the writer of this book, Ravenous, is very invested in talking about Jews and the Third Reich and and stuff like that. And that's and that's fine. But to do that, he he brings up Hitler and makes him this sort of. I mean, he's he's pitiless even when describing the death of Hitler's mother. Hitler's mother dies of cancer at the age of forty nine. That's early even today. And Hitler is completely distressed by this, I think, understandably. And he's screaming at the doctor, you know, this, the doctors just use the word incurable when they don't know what to do. Because she has a double mastectomy. Apparently the cancer goes away for a month and then it's back. And then the doctor's visiting her every, he's using this treatment called iodoform that he thinks is, it's probably just putting her in incredible pain and not doing anything, but he didn't know that. So people are kind of experimenting live because that's what they can do. But it's distressing because people have no idea where this comes from. They don't know why this is. And it horrifies them. There's a relatively recent history of cancer, which is observed in some very tiny percentage of, you know, they've they've done studies like 
can we observe evidence of cancer in 1062 Egyptian mummies? And it'll be in like one of them. In modern America, it's like one in two men, one in three women will get some form of cancer. I mean, it's just a very different statistical reality. Why is this happening? This relatively recent history of cancer by a man named Mukherjee from 2010 calls cancer the emperor of all maladies. But it doesn't discuss Otto Warburg at all. (laughs) And that is partly because the genetic theory of cancer becomes so vastly predominant. I mean, it's it's usually the only the only time that cancer is connected to behavior, it's usually some it's usually your behavior. So people will say, well, you smoked, so you got lung cancer. But then there are people that have been smoking for 55 years and you know, whatever, they die of a cold or something at 92. So that connection there is is generally seen to be genetic. Warburg did not believe that it was genetic. And one thing that is generally unknown, I, I would say, about both Germany between the wars, but also the Third Reich, so that's 33 to 45, and then Warburg will eventually come to America in order to get to have the money to continue research. Warburg is half Jewish, so was the head of the German Air Force during World War II. Germans didn't behave in all the ways that we're told that they did. But part of the reason that Warburg is funded royally throughout the Third Reich, despite being half Jewish and extremely difficult to get along with, even if he were fully German, is because the Third Reich has a devotion to, let's say, alternative medicine that is going to be the opposite of the way that these things are going in America or Britain. So if you look back at 19th century America, you can find it's fairly common that someone goes to the homeopathic hospital (laughs) or there were numerous colleges all over the United States devoted to what was called eclectic medicine, which was in its own way sort of as if if we even still had this, this sort of a thing, Western traditional medicine in the same way that you still have like Ayurveda or traditional Chinese medicine. Or there was in, you know, first places in Davenport, Iowa is chiropractic colleges. So these sorts of alternative forms of medicine are, are flourishing all over the United States long before the First World War. By the time of the Second World War, most of them have been regulated into non-existence or or the shadows at the very least out of sight out of mind and with that are usually opportunities for funding even within let's say mainstream medical establishments for theories that may or may not be sustainable or provable or popular right now so this has something to do with how i answered your why are the Germans like this? Or how can they be influential in these different realms of endeavor? And it's basically because they're willing to entertain alternate theories. So simultaneously, the Third Reich is permitting and, and, and funding research into the genetic theory of cancer. But its main funding is going into Warburg's metabolic theory of cancer. And that is just very basically that cancer is a dysfunction of metabolism it's an energy dysfunction in the body. And it it's when cells move from respirating and therefore functioning properly 
you know, all, all different kinds of cells throughout your body into fermenting. That is that they, they don't have air and then they begin to chew up glucose in order to increase fermentation in the same way that, you know, grape juice is going to rapidly turn into wine by the same process that that abnormal growth is what's going on in cancer. And that's how it's functioning is through intake of glucose. So that's his theory. That's the metabolic theory of cancer. It's going to return long after the second world war. But the reason that Warburg is able to do this is because the third Reich has a fairly deep devotion to what we now think of as Ayurvedic or, or I don't know, hippie <laughs> health trends and, and fads and the idea that diet is basically your health. Your food is your health or it is your sickness. So that basic idea is why Warburg is going to make it through the second. I mean, his his major challenges in the Second World War are not his own government. They they are largely the loss of funding because Germany's economy is going down the tubes, struggle to find food and so forth. He's not going to struggle to have his research funded as much as they possibly can by his government, which is racially to some degree hostile to him to some degree. But that's, you know, he's, he's able to do this because they're like, oh yeah, of course, you know, food is the major cause of this civilization wide dysfunction we're all experiencing now. Yeah. Food, food is medicine or it's poison. There really is no in between on that. I mean, I guess there are some things that could serve as both, but it, it either, either is really uh, encouraging your body to proper function, or it is acting as a toxin within the body, which the toxins can do a number of things. But, um, uh, generally they're going to make inflammation take place. And, and that tends to be uh, a problem. You know, as a, as a carnivore diet for three years guy now, and having done enough podcast science to, to consider myself an expert on all these things, um, I'm excited <laughs> to hear you uh, talking about this because the metabolic theory of cancer has been something that, uh, that, that I really have, uh, I bought into, um, because of seeing all the different ways that sugar does impact the body, uh, because of the idea that uh, cancer is not an exogenous disease, but it is, it isn't, as I said before, an autoimmune disease. It is your own body attacking itself in a certain way. Uh, not that all autoimmune is caused by sugar, but man, is there, is, is there a lot of lines uh, drawn to uh, glucosis as a cycle within the body that our ancestors would not have been able to maintain because they just didn't have all the, the sweet foods we have all the time. Even if they could get the apples in the fall, they weren't eating apples all year long, just couldn't be done. And so we've entered into a way of, of eating that is supremely unnatural and, and highly given over to uh, what we might call fleshly tastes, that is things that uh, are, are uh, they're appealing to the tongue, but they don't necessarily provide what the body needs. Anyway, I, I, I don't want to get on a, a soapbox about this too much. Um, but what, what is fascinating then is this, so, you know, last episode, I think it was, we, we were talking about how, uh, you know, Germany uh, lost World War II because they were evil, but the U.S. didn't win because they were good. And if you don't watch out when you when you win against your enemy, you might just set yourself up in pride for your own fall. Uh, the, the irony that cancer could have been cured if we hadn't won the war, that we won the war and now we all got cancer. Um, it's kind of it's kind of thick, actually, right there. 
um, the possibility that we could uh, find answers now. That's wonderful, and, and praise be to God if we if we are able to find those answers. Um, you know, carnivore diet, check it out. Uh, but I, I think it is it is potent here again that uh, in the victory of the American forces over the German forces in World War II, there was much valuable society civilization that was lost. And as you've pointed out, right. one of the one of the huge pieces of it was the ability to hold multiple points of view, to allow for an open perspective in which you could be wrong. Um, there might be another idea that's better. Uh, we could find out more because we don't know it all now. Um, and that is something that in almost every avenue of American society has now been lost. And I'm not advocating that there's not a trinity or you should open yourself up to pagan gods or, you know, anybody wants to go that direction. But but certainly um, when we're going to talk about things like quantum physics, right, we, we, really, we really have to be able to be wrong if we're ever going to learn. And that's a, a key lesson here. Einstein actually wrote a letter to Otto Warburg when he was on the Eastern Front in the First World War, pleading with him at Warburg's father's instigation. Einstein sort of knew Warburg. He knew him by name, certainly, in 1917, that his research was simply too important for mankind for him to be killed by a stray bullet somewhere in, you know, Belarusia. And so he needed to come home and devote himself again to his research because it was too important to all of mankind for him to be shot and for his research thus to be lost. The irony is that his research is lost because cancer research was no specific defense priority or national priority hmm. of any victor in the Second World War. Right. So Project Paperclip didn't go and grab this one. <laughs> no, unlike our next two episodes about nuclear power and air power, no one particularly wanted this or, or thought that they needed this. And the same attention had not been devoted for decades in Russia or the United States or, or Britain to searching for a cure for cancer to, that the Germans had actually devoted to the same question. So what you also lose in the destruction of the Germans is their particular configuration of concern, research, and knowledge that they have. And then that gets divvied up and spread out. And the parts that are not useful to the victors are generally dropped and left by the wayside. And then perhaps, as in the case of the metabolic theory of cancer, do get rediscovered later on, but will therefore certainly, although some of this is a little more mainstream, Gary Talbis is not a scientist, but he's written two books about the relationship between diet and cancer or over overnutrition, especially overnutrition of sugars to poor health generally in modern Western populations. So that's a little more mainstream when someone who is sort of like a science writer, as Sam Apple, the author of Ravenous also is, is writing about it. That's that's more popularized. That's accessible to a person like me who is you know not reading the New England Journal of Medicine. But the people who are researchers, who are physicians, who are biochemists, who are doing this kind of research in the 70s or the 80s or the 90s, they feel that they are resurrecting something from the dead. Because when Warburg dies, 
a decade or two after the end of the Second World War. The only people who really notice his death are generally people just like himself who used to be from Germany and now live in the United States. So one of the fathers of what we would now call sports medicine is a, a German expat in the U.S. called Ernst Jokl, J-O-K-L. And he thinks this is, you know, one of the giants of the earth has has now passed from the earth at Warburg's death. But probably the listener has never heard of Otto Warburg before. So what's interesting about this is that, you know, Einstein himself is writing to this man who got a Nobel Prize, I believe, in 1931. So you know, a little more than a decade after Einstein writes to him and Einstein says, you are too important to die in the first world war. You're too important to the rest of mankind. And now nobody knows who he is. So that has to do with what I think is very significant for, for modern listeners, as well as society to use a very vague word. And that is the meaning of the word science. Science has become for us an authority similar to scripture for our forefathers. Ultimate authority, the people who professionally do it or interpret it are untouchable. And for better or worse, they have enormous authority that is cloaked in vestments and endowed with all sorts of social sanctions. Scripture. So, Preaching in America historically had the same authority and sanction that science now does. Science, for somebody like Otto Warburg, means precisely the opposite of ultimate obvious appeals that are binding on everyone all of the time. For him, it is a discovery. It is beginning at the same place as Bovary looking at sea urchins. It is looking into how life deforms as well as forms, and therefore how that can be applied to how human life undergoes deformation as well as formation. That's not the same thing as saying the science is settled or the science does this, which is the way that with both environmental science as well as public health and lots of other realms of science or, or quasi-science we hear today is that oh, this is what scientists say, or, or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And if you read the biography of someone like Warburg, who devotes really his entire life to scientific research, you will find anything but settled opinions except after long, arduous experimentation. And even then, there's always a fresh way of framing it or theorizing it that would be more helpful than what he has went just at the moment that he's experimenting. Later on, he will form theories. Um, and he'll say, if you come up with a theory right after you're done experimenting, you are certainly wrong. <laughs> because you don't you 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 know what you got, but you don't you you don't see what you got. You don't understand what you got. So that's just the opposite of the way that science is so often both taught, but also imbibed as a source of beliefs mediated by a priestly, a priestly class who apparently all agree with each other. Hmm. Except for those that don't, and they're not, they're not, they don't count. Um, <laughs> right. They're yeah. not true scientists uh, now, at least the, um, the closed mindedness of the dogmatism is 
definitely uh, palpable in our current scientific environment here in uh, post-2020 America and, and the world. Um, believing in the potential for orthodoxy, small o, to be um, bent, to be incomplete, to be only a corner of the whole uh, is, is pretty key to scientific achievement, to discovery, right? That's one of your main points. Um, another one that is important to, to revisit and, and drive home is that uh, this dogmatism is kind of compounded by a lack of interest in what, is, what does not profit immediately, uh, and so if it is, if it is not obvious right away why this is better, uh, the, the American zeitgeist is not able to consider it worth trying longer, uh, for the sake of the experiment itself. And so the loss of, of both of these things in the scientific realm are things that we want to encourage you out there in listener land who are, uh, you're building your chem set in your garage, aren't you? Um, to, to discover, <laughs> right? To believe, to believe that there are things that are not known, believe that the, the sample size is small and we have not seen it all. Uh, to believe that uh, what science is best at is negating things, not proving things, uh, that it can show you what isn't true, but, but now it is true. And so there's always a potential to, to go deeper on, on the matter. Um, one other thing that uh, does jump to mind for me here um, is the, especially in the, the ignominy of Otto Warburg's later life, is that the right word? Um, ignominity, something like that, uh, is the industrial complex applied to nutritional development and the way that, uh, big agra, if we can call it that big ag, uh, has for a generation plus here, uh, really managed a, um, a system of delivery that brooks no question. So uh, the fact that General Mills is a, a sponsor of the uh, was it the World Heart Organization, whatever they call it, uh, the, the primary scientific community for studying heart disease, that your sponsor is the one selling you the sugar, um, that tends to lean away from the potential to ask questions that that might lead to certain answers. And um, uh, one of the, the little kind of anecdotal tidbits from, from my carnivore world is that the United States at one point was embroiled in a battle to remove the ability for tobacco, big tobacco, to sell its product to children. That at the very least, they were going to make it so that Joe Camel uh, couldn't be on TV. And, right. uh Big Tobacco had all of two states really represented in the Senate and, and in the U.S. Congress, um, whereas uh, Big Ag, you, you got a much, much stronger pull on your congressional seats right. there uh, with their ability to keep Tony the Tiger selling you Frosted Flakes on Saturday morning. And uh, what this has done to us as a generation, if I might, again, hobby horse here, it, is, it has weakened our will and destroyed our bodies in ways we can't even imagine. Uh, you don't have to become a carnivore to see that. Uh, you, you do need to see that what we are eating at this point in history, the standard American diet, rightly acronymed the SAD diet, uh, is something that is uh, d destroying us. On yeah. an epigenetic level, it's manifesting in our children in worse ways than it manifested in us and our parents who say, well, I ate this way my whole life. It didn't do me any problems. Um, I don't know. Look at them. You know, they're, they're not even healthy for old people, uh, it, it seems to me. So 
So there you go. I, I, why does this matter to me? Because it it has radically altered my experience of life, discovering some of this information. And, uh, you know, as, as one who used to look in the mirror and say, I guess you're just fat, Jonathan, you've tried everything. Um, uh, the one thing I hadn't considered was that, uh, sugar as a metabolic, uh, driver is, is not as natural as, uh, settled science would have you believe. Right. And, by comparison to tobacco, and I would point out that, again, uh, before the First World War, Germans are wondering on a research level whether sugar is a problem and whether tobacco smoke is a problem. So that in the case of tobacco smoke, that's about 60 years before anyone else began to think that it might be a problem. And, and I can remember the smoking section in the restaurant. So that wasn't that long ago. You telling but, me yeah. those little tiny walls didn't keep it from crossing? That was <laughs> it all sort of just smelled very different even it in the non-smoking section than it, it does did. today. Yeah. But and there's there's other stuff in cigarettes than than tobacco that that may be a problem. But as a in cigar any smoker, case, I appreciate you making that distinction. There you go. So. Um, but yeah, and I, I would say I would say relatively speaking, it's it's not only that tobacco might be much less, certainly much less widespread of a problem than nutritional dysfunctions are for us, but it is significant that our scientific research process is so obviously politically driven. Correct. And connected to financing cycles that have to do with elections and political priorities. And so, of course, if I want to do something orthodox about climate change, I will get funded. If I want to do something unorthodox about childhood obesity and its potential causes, right? I will not get funded. The, the point of the story is that if you know anything about the fight to get tobacco limited, it was to the death, to the wall, brutal and almost didn't happen. Right. Now, now that may not seem that way now, but it was when it happened then. And that was against two states worth of congressional yep. Yeah. And yeah. now and you're up against like 35 states worth right. of funding, right? So the 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 ability to actually have a project that would study this is like impossible. No one's going to fund you because your funder is the one who's selling the thing that you want to test to be the problem. <laughs> they're not gonna they're, the drug dealer is not gonna tell you what's wrong what's in the package, man. He's he's just not gonna do it, right? Uh, he he's gonna get you to get you hooked. He's gonna keep you hooked as long as he can. And this is where I begin to think of our having entered the dark ages civilizationally as connected to both world wars, certainly the second, but probably even the first, is that the the intellectual freedom to wonder things, whether at Cornell, which was a land grant, you know, that was, I mean, big ag in 1903 was allowed to ask the question, is sugar the problem? As it were, there was, I mean, big ag as such did not exist, but you understand I'm, what I'm saying. And now I just cannot imagine that happening. So those are, those are things where Warburg, both in his attachment to his World War I era Prussian army uniform, as well as in the intellectual breadth that he has permitted, also with official sanction, despite the fact that he's socially weird and disdainful and refuses to go to lectures while in medical school and gets graded down just one notch in his doctoral examination for being too imperious 
That's the criticism, despite all of those things. You sound so German to me. It's just <laughs> I mean, imagine imagine being so German that other Germans are like, this I guy know. comes off as What's cold up with and that distant. Guy? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but despite all those things, the 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 freedom that man, also Western man, plagued by increasing rates of cancer at the time, that man enjoyed is nowhere near the range that people enjoy today, that our minds are much narrower, our, our language is impoverished, and our just capacities for detailed concentration on something worth finding out are so much lower. So this is where I, I mean, some days I wake up and I think I'm living in the year 604. Yeah. Right. <laughs> no, and no one will care or remember anything that was made this year because <laughs> it's just not worth remembering, you know. Because when you look at even the relatively recent past, it seems a, a paradise of of freedom and openness. So, what what we're really wanting you listener to get out of this episode, particularly, is the capacity to be wrong and to turn around and seek another direction. The ability to imagine that all that you see is not all that there is, that there are answers waiting out there to be discovered, maybe rediscovered, because a lot of it has been found before, but much of what's been found has been lost. And uh, even what has been found is, is not all that there is. It, it is the, uh, the glory of kings to, to seek out an answer to that right. which God has hidden. And for those of us sitting at the verge of a, of a dark ages, uh, how glorious is it to have before you a path that is not easy, uh, not obvious, but filled with opportunity to disagree with a, a, a mentally disordered orthodoxy that is intent upon destroying its own children. Uh, you can see further than that. And a big part of that then is the ability, the freedom, the permission to question settled things, uh, particularly those things which claim to be settled because of the, the very petty God, reason, and science, uh, and uh, those that reject so outwardly uh, the scripture which is given to make you wise. Uh, we've, we've got about two minutes left here, so I don't want to, sure. I, I mean, we could end it right there, but I, I don't want to cut the listeners short. And so can you just talk for, for a brief moment about where we're going in the next two episodes with, uh, I believe it is aircraft and, and nuclear bombs after all that we have to talk about, not the CIA, but yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, and and that's partly because we've talked a fair amount about our security state before, so I would hope the listeners think of it as a sort of background to everything, but it will enter in in a fairly large capacity to talking about nuclear weaponry because so much of the American development of nuclear weaponry involves the growth and consolidation of our security state during the Second World War. We will tell that story also through the German development of similar things and similar discussions by way of contrast so that we can see people who got to where they were trying to go and people who didn't and, and what the difference was. But it is, it, it's not an effort to provide really any measure of valor on either side, but why certain roads were taken and why others were not, that will play into the concluding technological World War II discussion about air power, including both 
bombers and rocketry because these are all elements of World War II that go on to define the 50 or 60 years after the Second World War, as especially nuclear weaponry will do. So they will be, I think, severe contrast with what we've talked about this week because they're not necessarily devoted to healing anything, but they are immensely powerful weapons developed very intentionally to some degree by any side that possibly can in the Second World War for the promotion and the extension of the state's prerogatives. And it's it's the role of that state, not just the security state, but national governments per se, that's going to become so much more vastly important in daily life down to the point where now they're regulating your personal medical choices directly. How did they get there? That's that's what we're going to begin to tell. Yeah, I, to, to the point where now, now if I, I'll just have to jump in again. Um, regulating my personal health choices with genetic manipulation rather than an awareness of environmental factors. I mean, it, <laughs> That's right, it yeah. really, it really is writ large if you want to go looking. Yeah. You're listening to A Brief History of Power. You know where to find us or you wouldn't be here. What do you think of when you hear the word college? Expensive? Liberal? Woke? Imagine a college that is affordable. A college that is unapologetically conservative and Lutheran. A college that won't take a dime of federal funding. A college that teaches the best of our Western heritage. A college where students grow in the Christian faith instead of leaving it behind. This is Luther Classical College. A college by Lutherans and for Lutherans. Visit our website, lutherclassical.org. Subscribe, become a patron, and join the thousands who are making Luther Classical College a reality. At 7,123 feet, you can find mountains soaring above you and rivers running swiftly in the valley below you. Natural beauty of every kind. But our God is richer in his gifts than this. At 7,123 feet in Pagosa Springs, Colorado, you can also find God's word preached purely and his sacraments given out for your salvation at Our Savior Lutheran Church and School. Located off US 160, just west of downtown Pagosa, Our Savior offers your children a wonderful place to learn of Christ and his wisdom week in and week out and offers you the medicine of immortality Sunday in and Sunday out. Our Savior Lutheran School provides a Christ-focused classical education that enriches the child's soul with the best that has been thought and said to the glory of God. Whether you visit while vacationing or hunting in the beauty of the area, or whether you would like to join a group of faithful Lutheran Christians, our Savior, Pagosa Springs, has what you're looking for. Divine service with Holy Communion is each Sunday at 9 a.m., and Bible class follows at 10.30. At more than a mile high, you will find Christ in all his glory in the midst of his people at Our Savior Lutheran Church and School, a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. Find out more at oslcpagosa.org. North Idaho is home to beautiful mountains and scenic lakes, small-town tranquility, civil freedom, and the faithful Lutheran parish of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, located in Hayden, Idaho, near Coeur d'Alene. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church is a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. If you like what you hear on Brief History, then you will love Blessed Sacrament. 
where the Lord's word is faithfully preached, and Christ's body and blood are administered at every divine service. Whether you are visiting Idaho or considering moving to Idaho, wouldn't it be nice? Please join the saints of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church for the Mass and Augsburg Academy Bible Study. Directions, service times, and much more information about this confessional, liturgical parish may be found at blessedsacramentlutheranchurch.com. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, Historic Christian Orthodoxy, the Evangelical Lutheran Faith in the Beautiful Inland Northwest.